Thanks, Chiba. Let's pray. Lord, we've been speaking to you in this service, singing praises, speaking to you in prayer. Now, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us through this passage. Speak your truth into our hearts and focus us together for your purposes this year. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Serving God together. That's sort of like our focus for this year, the emphasis being on the last word, together. This is a wonderful passage and it's a great story and I want us to learn the story, remember the story, reflect on the story throughout this year and we're certainly going to revisit this story at various points throughout this year. So I want to work our way through the passage in uh, just a moment. Um, let me by, give you a little bit of background though before we jump into all that. Uh, this chapter certainly is about actual events, true events that did happen. But in the process of the early years uh, when John was alive of retelling this story over and over and over, it suddenly became very helpful as a parable that what really happened becomes also symbolic of how Jesus related to them is how Jesus continues to relate with us in his post-resurrection state. Um, of course, the, the disciples had no idea that they were spiritual actors or actors in this spiritual drama. But the story gets told and retold, and so it has great implications for the church. Um, John tells this story of the risen Lord standing on a distant shore and uh, giving his directions to his disciples. He's watching them, he's interested in them, he cares about them, he wants to work through them, and so he gives directions on what they are to do, and he blesses their obedient response. This is followed by a time of intimate fellowship with Jesus and with one another. That's the point. John chapter 21 also explains for us one of the little gaps that we have in our biblical story because the last time we had met Peter, he had denied the Lord Jesus three times and then ran away. And then at the post-resurrection state, we know that Jesus had met with Peter, but we don't have any details. Just the angel saying, and tell Peter. And we know that he, Jesus met with Peter on that Sunday afternoon, but as I said, no details are given. But when you get to the book of Acts, in the first 12 chapters, Peter is dominant. Um, he's the key leader in the early church. So how did that come about? Well, John chapter 21, told by Peter's friend John, fills in the gaps for us. John 21 tells us what happened to Peter, what Jesus did with him publicly, and how he got reinstated, recommissioned to ministry. John 21 is about us following and serving Jesus by fishing. And it's at his direction and us fellowshipping with him. We are to connect with one another like they did and we are to serve together. He leads us together as a church, as a group, not just individually, but corporately together. Well, before his crucifixion, the Lord Jesus had said to the disciples that after I am raised from the dead, I will go before you into Galilee. The angel repeats that message to the women saying, he will meet you in Galilee. The Passover is now finished. The horrors of the crucifixion um, have been replaced with the abounding joy of the empty tomb and the appearances of the Lord Jesus to his disciples. 
Thomas has confessed, my Lord and my God. That's just in the chapter before, the paragraph before this chapter. And now the disciples in obedience have traveled 130 kilometers north to Galilee, where they are waiting to receive further instructions about the Lord Jesus. You can imagine the conversations on the way and the questions they may have had of when will we see him, where will we see him, what will he do, what will he want us to do, what's it gonna be like, will he now set up the kingdom, is this where it all starts? And Galilee was certainly a very familiar place for these guys because that's their home territory. They're all from Galilee. The only one of the 12 apostles who wasn't from Galilee was Judas. Many of their local towns, Cana, Bethsaida, Capernaum, Nain, these were the places, their home villages, where Jesus had performed miracles, had done teaching. The Sermon on the Mount was delivered from the slopes of a mountain in Galilee. On the opposite side of the lake, that's where Jesus had cast out that demon called Legion. And the demons had gone into the pigs and the pigs had run down and drowned in this very same lake, the Sea of Galilee. And it's on this side significantly of the shore of Lake Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, that the Lord Jesus on one occasion had taken um, five loaves, two fish, had multiplied them and had fed 5,000 men at one time. It was more than that because the Bible doesn't, is saying it's 5,000 men, not counting women and children. And it's also in this same spot, on this same lake, on this shore, that the Lord Jesus had called them to come follow him, where he had performed a very similar miracle three years before. And this miracle must have reminded them of that call. In fact, in Luke 5, in that first story, where they catch this huge amount of fish and they're in the boat, Jesus says to them to leave all of this behind and come follow me and I will make you fishes of men. From this point on, their vocabulary would change. When they spoke about fishing from now on, they meant evangelism. They meant fishing for people, not fishing for fish. But in John 21, the disciples are back fishing for fish. But that's why John is giving us this story because he's not using fishing. He's using fishing in this double sense. He means evangelism but it's really literally also fishing. So that for the disciples, this return trip to Galilee would have brought back memories and um, of their previous uh, experiences, reminders of ministry of what Jesus done, familiar scenes, familiar places, just like for us, you know, where it all began. But for Jesus, this would be an opportunity to be a good place for him to give one last interview, one last object lesson before he was to ascend, before he was to leave them. So John tells us, afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples. Afterwards, after Thomas has said, my Lord and my God. The very next thing that is recorded is this story for us. Jesus appeared to them. While Jesus had risen from the dead in the physical body, he was not always visibly present. It's one of the mysteries. Where was he? He's physically here in this world and yet invisible. He appeared and disappeared. Acts chapter one tells us that he did that over a period of 40 days. He was not with them every day for 40 days. He was with them and then he wasn't. He was with them on one Sunday, then nothing. Then he's with them again the following Sunday and then nothing. He visits the two on the Emmaus Road and on and on and on, stories like that. 
And now they've travelled north, they're waiting because they've been instructed to go there, and so they are waiting for the Lord Jesus to turn up. Um, And this is going to be the third appearance that John tells us about. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as the twin, that's what Didymus means, Nathaniel, whom we met in chapter one. Interestingly, he's from Cana. He's also from up north. Remember, Nathaniel is the one who says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Seems like village rivalry between Cana and Nazareth and so on. The sons of Zebedee, who were they? James and John. And there were two other disciples. And probably Andrew and Philip were not told, so it's not important, but that's who it probably was way back in chapter one. John 21 and John chapter one is like the prologue and the epilogue. There are amazing parallels between them to tie off the gospel. The point that I want you to note is these guys are all different. Simon Peter is the one with the doubts and he's the one who was impetuous and energetic and he acts. He's one of those guys that goes, ready, fire, aim. Thomas is the guy who has a very serious intellectual guy, I think, but a guy who was honest enough and had doubts. He refused to believe at one point. Nathaniel seems to be a much quieter person. The two sons of thunder were fiery individuals. Sons of thunder, Jesus called them. They were loud and aggressive, boisterous. And two other disciples, unknown details. Point is, they're together. That is a significant verse, even though it's quite easy to jump over. This is the church in microcosm. This is a picture of us. We are together, we're different, but we are committed and together. And it's good news that they're together because if you remember at the crucifixion, they were scattered, they ran. And then the only time they were together was in the upper room behind closed doors and that was in Jerusalem. But here they now are in Galilee, they've returned home um, uh, and it's very familiar territory, but this is the area where Jesus publicly ministered and here they are together in open allegiance to Jesus in the very region where Jesus had been so prominent in public ministry. The resurrection of Jesus is starting to transform them, starting to change them. And part of that transformation that happens for us, not just individually, that happens, but there's also this corporate dimension. We move from being just an individual follower of Jesus to being committed to our brothers and sisters, family, together with one another. So like I said, this return to Galilee would have reminded them of the smells and the boats and the nets and seeing the lake. And here they are in Galilee doing as they were directed, waiting for Jesus for further instructions. So before I go on, let me say this. There are five points. Point number one, they were obedient to what they were told to do and they were connected. They were together. They were in Galilee because they'd been told to go there and they did it together. That's what we need to be, obedient and connected. Well, they're in Galilee. Jesus hasn't turned up yet and the hours are probably starting to turn into days. So Peter says, I'm going fishing. I'm going out to fish. The others said to him, we're going with you. Together. One person made a decision, I had an idea, and the others went, yep, that's a good idea, let's go. Um, And so they went out, they got into their boat, and they went and did it, and they fished all night, and John tells us, and they caught nothing. Were they disobeying Jesus' call to ministry? Definitely not. 
Though some commentators, and in fact quite a few preachers, like to say so, but I think they're wrong. Were they abandoning their call to service? Were they going back to their trades? No, they weren't. In Luke chapter 8, verse 3, we're told that the women, very uh, wealthy women, who travelled with Jesus before his crucifixion in his public ministry, they supported him financially. Now that Jesus has been crucified, that financial support has probably stopped. These guys are starting to run short of funds. They've got families. And so, in fact, I think they're being good husbands and providers. They're trying to think, we need to eat. We need money. Let's go fishing. They're not being disobedient. I think they're being um, sensible and wise. Let me just amplify or clarify that for you. If they were doing the wrong thing, then Jesus would have corrected them. Wouldn't he? Well, he doesn't. If they were doing the wrong thing, then Jesus would not have helped them do it successfully. Would he? If they were doing the wrong thing, then after Jesus questioned them, have you caught anything? And they said, no. Then he said, well, of course not. You're doing the wrong thing. Get back here. But he doesn't because they're not doing the wrong thing. I think it's all understandable what they're doing. Their problem was that they had relied only on their own wisdom, their own skills, their own strength. They hadn't paused to say, is this a good and sensible thing for us to do? There's no record of that. And so I know I'm reading between the lines. They, like us, were used to accomplishing things by hard work and diligent efforts. They went at the right time, they went to the right place, they went with the right equipment, and they failed. They caught nothing. Catching nothing, pretty unusual, particularly on the Sea of Galilee, which is full of fish. You could have a good catch, you could have a poor catch, but to catch nothing, not one, that is very unusual. But it had happened once before, Luke chapter 5. And this event will certainly remind them of it, which is why this is here in the gospel. Unknown to the seven disciples, as I've already indicated, they're a microcosm of the church, a mixed bunch, some failing, some non-entities, but they're in this together. They're toiling on the restless seas, if you like, of this world. Um, but the point I want us to note is they were connected to one another. They agreed together in doing this. They weren't doing the wrong thing. They may have gone off on their own bat, rightly or wrongly, but they were connected and obedient. A lesson for us. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but the disciples did not recognise or realise that it was Jesus. It's early morning. The sun comes up around about 6am in Galilee, um, from the east, obviously, over the desert sands of Syria. And then the sunlight hits the tops of the hills and then it slowly descends into the valley onto the Sea of Galilee, which is 600 feet below, 180 metres below sea level. And usually because of that, there is often a mist on top of the sea in the early hours of the morning. And Jesus is standing there on the shore watching them, as he always is. When the disciples were in the storm on this very same lake, Jesus was on a mountain in John chapter 6, and he's watching them in the middle of the storm. That time he came walking to them on the water. This time he doesn't. He's watching them. 
watching what's happening. This is an opportunity almost that he has manipulated or created in order to teach a lesson. Anyway, he certainly came that morning to teach the disciples a lesson to remind them of some truth. He had waited all night. Could have come during the night, but he didn't. He waited till morning. Um, because in the kingdom rule, and here is the point of it, in ministry and as we follow the Lord Jesus and serve him, the rule is John chapter 15, verse 5. He is the vine, we are the branches. If we remain in him and he in us, then we will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Why did they catch no fish? To remind them of this lesson. That fishing is not about physical fishing, but about evangelism, and you need to do it following his directions. Unfortunately, many of us misinterpret that text, John 15, where it says, apart from me, you can do nothing. We read it as if Jesus says, without me, you can't do very much. It's very different. That's nothing. Nothing of any spiritual or eternal significance. We can be very confident in our own plans and our own abilities. In fact, 10 very famous words. If it is to be, it's up to me. If it is to be, it's up to me. I have to do it. That's not the biblical truth. It's not the biblical way. That's we do it with him as he directs in his strength, relying on him. Peter was certain, I reckon, that he knew how to catch fish on the Sea of Galilee. So there's no need to stop and pray and no need to check with God. Is this okay? He just went. Richard Phillips and Bruce Milne, they did some reflection on this passage. And let me give you their extended quote. It's not on screen, sorry, but it's long. They say, in the Western church, prayer and waiting on God <clears throat> has ebbed to a low tide. Prayer and waiting on God. So now that it's virtually impossible to get church members to make a commitment to pray together. Just as Peter and co labored through the night in their own strength, only to find empty nets in the morning, so our widespread self-reliance and our emphasis on worldly methods has left the church spiritually poor and empty netted. It's a strong quote. Just as Peter and co labored through the night in their own strength and using their own worldly methods, they ended up with empty nets. So if we rely on ourselves and our worldly methods, without me, you can do nothing. So the challenge for us this year is to connect, certainly to connect with him, but to connect especially with one another. Because where the Lord sees unity, there he commands the blessing. The disciples didn't realise it was Jesus. Maybe it's because they were tired. Maybe it's because he looked a bit different now in the resurrection. Maybe it's because of that mist that was on top of the thing. Whatever, it's 90 metres, 100 yards away. For whatever reason, they didn't do it, didn't recognise him. But what does he do? He called out to them. Friends. Interesting term. Haven't you any fish? No, they replied. Friends. Hey, fellas, guys, there's this very general term. They're younger than what he is, but it's not talking about a close relationship. He's maintaining something of his um, hidden identity. And the question Jesus asks is really interesting. 
haven't you any fish? In the Greek, it's always how it's translated, but it can almost be a statement with a question mark at the end. Jesus is, the question requires a negative answer, it anticipates a negative response. He's saying, you don't have any fish, do you? He knows what he's doing. Jesus always asks questions and so does God because he wants us to come to a realisation and awareness of something about either what we've done or about ourselves. You don't have any fish, do you? The honest answer is no. And that's what they give it. I like to imagine, what if they had said, yes, we do? What would he have done? Well, they said no, but I like to imagine if they had said no, he would have gone walking on the water looking for, show me a catch. He would have exposed them because it's important spiritually for them to honestly admit their failure, to acknowledge their situation as it is always for us, whether it's a sin, whether it's a mistake, whether it's just a blunder, whatever it is to acknowledge our failure, personally and corporately. Jesus, there are 3,294 questions in the Bible, all designed to probe. God is always asking questions. And it's also interesting, throughout the Gospels, the disciples never catch any fish without Jesus, unless they follow his instructions, never. And just like Jesus can help them, so he can help us. There's a movie um, with Tom Cruise in it. I think it's called Night and Day. If you've seen it, put up your hand if you've seen it. Six of you. It's an old movie now. There's a scene in it where Tom Cruise is like a superhero, a James Bond type figure. And whatever her name is, I can't remember. Um... And he saves her. And at some point she gets, she wants to run away. She, she doesn't know who he is. She doesn't trust him at one point. And he says to her this, with me, without me. With me, without me. With me, you're safe. Without me, probably the others will catch you. With me, without me. If you haven't seen the movie, won't make any sense. But if you have seen the movie, that was a remarkable rendition of it. With Jesus, safe, blessed. Without him, not relying on him, not talking to him, not connected with his people, we struggle. That's the point. Point number one, they were connected to Bernie. And point number two, we should always be honest with God and admit our failures. Because when we do, we open ourselves to his directions. We open ourselves to his blessing. And that's exactly what happens here. Verse 6a, because they've said no, then Jesus says, and throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. He gives them, tells them exactly what to do. You've been throwing it on the left-hand side or whatever, throw it on the right-hand side. We are creatures of habit. We always tend to do certain things certain ways just because we're comfortable in doing it that way. So when you go fishing with a net in the boat, you either throw it left-handed or you throw it right-handed. You're either left or right-handed. Jesus is saying, do something different. Don't throw it on that side. Throw it on this side. Now, this is not a naturalistic explanation of it, but this is nonetheless, I think, a truth, that around the Sea of Galilee, there are certain hot springs, and they, below the bottom of the lake, can sometimes shoot up um, warm water. So there's pockets of warm water in the Sea of Galilee, and apparently fish like warm water. So they'll gather into a, a pocket of warm water. 
And so it's quite possible you can get a scoop like this of a large catch of fish. Well, whether that's how it happened or whether Jesus just commanded the fish to jump into the net, I don't know. Throw your nets on the right-hand side of the boat and you will find some. He's directing them and they are obedient. Jesus is the one who makes up all the difference, doesn't he? When they did, they caught a huge, in fact, so huge, they weren't even able to drag the net, lift the net out of the sea into the boat. They had to tow it behind them, behind the boat. So they're rowing and they're dragging now, and we know later on in the passage, it's 153 fish. And they're not just small fish, they're large fish. God has blessed them. It's provided for them. Not just to eat some in, in a few minutes, but really to sell and to make profit from to support their family and loved ones. Jesus provides and Jesus blesses them. So they were connected and obedient. They were honest about their failure. They were open to his directions and they obeyed them. What he said to do, they did. That's easy. That's the story. That's why we need to remember it. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, that's the Lord. John is always the one who is thinking and putting things together. Does it a couple of times through the gospel. Um, here he goes, we went fishing all night and didn't catch anything. That stranger, that bloke on the shore, told us to do this and we did and suddenly we catch 150, that God's in this. And then he goes, that's the Lord. And Peter, who had stripped off, taken his shirt off if you like, which indicates how hard they were working and they weren't just recreationally fishing, they were working hard and getting nothing. And then Peter, when he hears it's the Lord, suddenly dresses himself because he doesn't want to appear before the Lord the way he was dressed and cannonballs in, doesn't dive. Swimming wasn't great in those days, he jumps in fully clothed. When we go swimming, what do we do? Take our clothes off. We're our swimmers and dive in. What does Peter do? He puts them all on and jumps in. What does that indicate? Well, how much he loved Jesus. I'd rather be with Jesus on the shore than coming with this boat, which is going very slow because they're dragging 153 fish. So the boat's going slowly through the water and Peter just jumps in and dog paddles or breaststrokes or whatever his way there. I don't think the Australian crawl had been invented just yet. But the Bible, Isaiah, certainly talks about extending your arms and swimming. So that'll do. Maybe it was a dog paddle. Peter jumps in, passionate to want to see the Lord Jesus. John is the one who puts it together, but Peter, the typical one, is the one who acts. And then when he arrives on the shore, there he is, completely drenched. His beard's uh, dripping, his hair is matted, his clothes are fully drenched head to foot and he's smiling at Jesus. The wonderful thing is Jesus gives Peter time to dry off, get warm, satisfy his hunger and enjoy personal fellowship before he asks the questions. He ministers to the body as well as to the soul. They had sorted some of the stuff out, I'm sure, in that one-on-one -on -one conversation they had after the resurrection. But Peter had denied Jesus publicly and so now it had to be a public restoration. That's what's going on in the second half of this chapter that we don't read today. The three questions, do you love me? That's the most important thing. Do you love me? Do you love Jesus? If you love Jesus, then do that with my sheep. Feed them, 
lead them, tend them, care for them. If you love Jesus, you will love his family. And John, who's writing this story, never forgot the link. In fact, in 1 John, he perpetually joins this link between, you can't say I love God and not love brothers and sisters. If you don't love brothers and sisters, then you're a liar, you don't love God. We're going to look at that epistle later on through our year. John never forgot it. The other disciples who were in the boat, uh, they weren't far from the shore, about 100 yards, and they're towing now this thing. Notice the miracle doesn't remove the hard work. It was a blessing, but it still involves some effort. This had happened before. The differences, two differences, is Jesus was in the boat last time and this time he's on the shore. Like he is now, he's in heaven, but he's still directing the church, still directing the ship in the world, the church. First time, the nets were torn, the nets broken. This time, even though there's 153 ship, the nets weren't broken. What does that mean? Well, probably none will be lost. We won't know how many souls are saved until you get to the shore. They didn't know they had 153 ship until they counted it on the shore and the nets weren't broken. None will be lost. Something like that. When they landed, for the second time in the gospel, they saw that there was a burning coals, just like Peter with his denials. And there was fish and bread. Again, remember that link, fish and bread, John chapter six. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have caught. He's going to always use what we do for him. We get rewarded for our efforts. He uses us, he sends us, and then he's going to reward us. So Peter climbs back into the boat, drags the net ashore, which is what they couldn't do before. But because now Jesus has said it, they're able to do it. Obedience enables things to happen was a large 153. I wish I had five minutes to tell you all the very exciting things about 153, but what it means is somebody counted the fish. There's 153 fish. Many commentaries are filled with all different sorts of symbolic meanings and so on, but it just means there was 153 fish. Nothing extra special about it. You ever been fishing? Many of you have. What do you do when you catch fish? Count them. So then you can talk about it. That's what's happening here. Jesus said to them, this is beautiful, come and have breakfast. The Lord Jesus wants to spend time with them because he likes them, he cares about them. So too with us, he wants to spend time with us and us with him. It takes time to prepare the breakfast. When they get there, they find that Jesus has already started. It's a little bit awkward because nobody says, who are you? They know it's Jesus. But Jesus says to them, listen, come and have breakfast, but nobody's moving, nobody's talking. They're all just waiting and wondering. So Jesus goes and gets the bread and breaks it and gives it to them. And then Jesus does it again with the fish. He gives them the bread and they enjoy it. He gives them the fish and they enjoy it, like John chapter six. Exactly the same thing, bread and fish. This story links with other story and it reminds you of those lessons, those truths that what we give to him, he takes and multiplies to provide for us as well as to minister through us. This was the third appearance Jesus said to his disciples after he had risen from the dead. There were certainly a lot more appearances, but this is certainly the third one in John's gospel, and it's the third one as a group. 
That's what this passage is saying. And it's Jesus appearing. He would also disappear and they'll meet him up again back in Jerusalem. What were the points? Well, initially they were obedient. They went to Galilee and they were together. They were connected. That's what we need to do this year. Obedient and connected. They were honest with God. Did you catch any fish? No. Admit your failures. What if he asks us, how's the fruit? How many people are coming to know Jesus? How many disciples are we making? It's a humbling question and it's a challenging question. We need to be honest with him about it. We need to be open to his directions and it could very well be something different that we've never done before. Open to his directions, obedient to what he wants us to do. And then we have to take every opportunity we can to have fellowship with Jesus, to have breakfast with him, to have bread and fish with him. He loves to hang around with us and he desires us to hang around with him before we go and serve him. In fact, in Mark chapter 3, verse 14, when Jesus prayed and appointed the 12 to be his apostles, Mark tells us he appointed those 12 to be with him and then to be sent out to preach and to cast out demons. With him is an important priority. Connected to him, connected with one another. So we are to be committed to God every day. How's that for you? We are to be connected with one another every week. Every Sunday, church. Every week, connect group. Every week, ministry together with one another. Every group. Every week, maybe an accountability group or something else, but connecting, calling one another. As well as we ought to be concerned for others at every opportunity that we have, not just to be insular, but to be balanced, connected with him, with one another, and reaching out to others, fishing for him. How are we going to do that this year? Well, if I used one word to summarise all of that, for me, the word is connecting. Connect with God, connect with one another, especially in this COVID season, and then connecting with people who are outside the church. This is what we're going to do this year. We're going to connect and achieve these purposes by praying for it and encouraging you to do that, by encouraging one another to be fully obedient to whatever God wants us to do, which means if we see one another doing something which is disobedient, then we'll exhort, we'll come alongside and lovingly challenged to encourage you to be obedient, doing God's will together. We're going to address our membership and we need to do that this year of defining our church community, who is part of this church, who belongs, who wants to belong. We want to be a church which is open to all and for the people to come, to believe in Jesus, to follow him and to join us in that. We want to improve our welcoming processes and our following up. We have a welcoming team and we have that now. We have some follow-up, but we want to develop that. We want to develop our connect groups this year. That's key to our future. Pastor Charlie is over that. So if you're in a connect group, you'll be hearing from him. If you're not in a connect group, we want to encourage you to get into one, to join one, to start one. Or a master life group or whatever. I'm starting a master life group. We're doing book three. starts this Wednesday. So if you want to come along and join that, you may. We're going to develop our care teams. We have a care team that covers pretty much the 8.30 and other parts of the church. But we want to have care teams in the other congregations as well. We do in the Chinese, but we want to develop them at 10.30 and 5.30. 
There's a thing that we've spoken about for years called care callers. We may start that this year. It's a process. We'll talk about it down the road. We're going to study 1 John this year, which is all about loving God, loving one another. We'll look at the one another passages, and there's a lot of them in the New Testament because it's about connecting. God wants us to take this seriously. We're going to gather together as a church and those who are at home online as as best as we can to gather physically. And if we can't gather physically, to gather online. We've got to figure out a way of doing that better, that we're actually connecting, communicating with one another. So one of the ways to do that is know where you're sitting. Most of the times when you come to church, you either sit over there, sit here, sit there, sit over there, down the front or down the back, in the middle. We tend to be creatures of habit. We tend to sit in the same spot. So get to know the half a dozen rows of people around you, wherever you're sitting. If you look around and you don't like them, move. Hospitality weekends, we're going to do a couple this year. Remember, Judy led us in that last year, the November, I think it was, October, November. That was fantastic. We're going to do that again this year. So if you missed out last time, join up this time. And we're going to do, the board has asked us to do two surveys. We're doing the NCLS, please do that. When that's finished, at the end of this month, we're going to do another in-house survey. We're just going to take you two minutes. And it's just going to evaluate where we're at in terms of how connected we are or aren't. And that same survey we'll take again in October, at the end of the year, and to see if there's any improvement, any growth, any development. And we, of course, fully expect that there will be as we are obedient to him and as we connect with one another. So there we go. Committed to God every day. We want to help you to do that. This year especially, connecting with one another every week. We're going to talk a lot more about this as time goes forward, regularly, in our bulletin as well as in the pulpit. We want to be concerned for others, obviously, at every opportunity. So our emphasis this year, connected to one another every week. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this story. Thank you that you met them in Galilee and that you had a final lesson to give them and us. Lord, you look to us to be obedient and connected, honest with our failures, open to your directions, obedient to your instructions, and committed to having fellowship with you as often as we can and with one another. Lord, achieve your purposes, this focus, in us and in our church, we pray, this year, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Darrell. Uh, we're going to move straight into a time of communion now. So at home, uh, please uh, prepare your elements. And certainly if you're in the auditorium here, uh, feel free to, continue to begin to peel um, these little packs because they do get quite noisy and I'm happy for you to do that right now. Does anyone require communion who hasn't received the elements? Please raise your hands. 
We're all good? Splendid. Splendid. I want to read very briefly for you from Matthew 26, verses 26 to 29. This is where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples, and he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. We're here having communion. What is communion? Communion speaks about fellowship or relationship with someone, a closeness um, that we experience in communion. And so we're talking about our relationship, our closeness, our fellowship with our loving Heavenly Father. That is what communion is about. So this is literally about connecting with God. I think Pastor Darrell has spoken a little bit about that this morning. And so as we take these elements, we are remembering the great work that the Lord Jesus Christ did, his finished work upon the cross, so we could have relationship with our Heavenly Father. And that's what this is about. 